on today's episode of Power of the Purell, the under-quarantine version of Power of the Towel. It's embrace the fake time. We at the Next Misconduct Network are all in on a Canuck Stanley Cup this year, and we'll get into why. And of course, the big Canucks news this week, Judd Brackett. It was announced Friday that he's not going to re-sign his contract. What's happening there? We're going to break that down. Our guest this week is J.D. Burke. And of course, we're going to end the episode with our binge recommendation. Should be a good one. You'll be saying wow every time you use this towel. He's not a person at all. He's a towel. You're a towel. But in Vancouver, mainly it's all about towel power. Are you ready? What is going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Power of the Purell, the under-quarantine version of Power of the Towel. I'm your host, Nick Bondi. Make sure to subscribe to Nux Misconduct Network. Yes, the Nux Misconduct Network, wherever you get podcasts. Not only do you get this show, you get Silky and Filthy, Puck Talk and Bullshit comes out every Thursday. The Quickie, a daily hockey show for everyone out there. And of course, Sip It on 40, coming back in short order. Now, the big news this week surrounding the Vancouver Canucks was announced Friday. Judd Brackett, the Judd Brackett era is over, folks. He is done. He will not be renewing his contract. The Canucks announced that he will not be back at the conclusion of his contract, which I believe is the end of June. So I doubt he's going to be around when the NHL draft happens because that's not happening for a while. Now, there's a lot of good reporting from a lot of good people, and we're going to have one of those people later in J.D. Burke to break it down a bit further. But from everything I've read, from everything I've absorbed, from this saga, it seems to be based on trust and autonomy, right? There's reports that Jim Benning, you know, hired scouts without consulting Judd Brack, without letting Judd Brack a chance to interview them. There's talk that he let go of some of Judd Brackett's favorite scouts without telling Judd Brackett. And folks, when you have someone who is a micromanager like that, that Jim Benning seems to be, I'd be pissed off too, man. Yeah, I'd be pissed off. It seems from 2017 to 2019, Judd Brackett had his way. You know, there's uh, Thomas Drance today on, uh, on his podcast, the, uh, the Vancast, which you should all check out for another show, Thomas Drance, great guy. He pretty much said that in 2016, Jim Benning and John Weisbrot had a laser fixation on Ole Levy, and that caused concern. They didn't think, you know, Trevor Linden, the then president, I guess then Trevor, sorry, Jim Benning's boss, figured we needed, we needed to, you know, cast a wire net. That's where I think Judd Brackett came in. You know, 2017, 2019, seemed like he had his way, right? Second day of 2019, Matt Sakaris of TSN 1040 reports that he was stripped of his autonomy on the second day the list was moved, which, I mean, if you believe someone like Thomas Trance, didn't seem like that big of a deal. Didn't seem too out of place. But hey, maybe to bracket, maybe that was, even if that wasn't out of place, weird, that seemed to be where it happened. Jim Benning apparently didn't like the perceived leaks coming out from Judd Brackett's camp. And it very much was, you know, Jim Benning trying to put out the fire 
And, you know, Judd Brack would then come back out with his side of the story through the media. Very much back and forth. And despite what the comments say on the, on the athletic article by Thomas Rice, I think he did a good job pretty much breaking it down. But the Judd Brack era is officially over, folks. And one thing that has left to be determined is who exactly drafted Elias Pettersson? This was like the big debate for some reason coming out of the jet bracket was who drafted Elias Pettersson? Folks, it's like trying to break down who actually got the Jeffrey Epstein. You have some people saying, oh, Ron DeLorme found him. No, no, he didn't. He was a WHL scout. Like People are freaking breaking down, trying to break down who drafted who, who told who. Some people say Ingi Hammerstrom was the first guy. People are citing this Ben Kuzma article from back today that Ron DeLorme actually first scouted him. People are saying no. We got people in the, in, in, on Twitter breaking down what discovered means versus putting on someone's radar. Like that's where it's, that's where it's come to on Canucks Twitter. People are just furiously breaking down who, who drafted Elias Patterson. That's absolutely wild. It's absolutely wild, folks. I don't know if we'll ever, I don't think we'll obviously ever been, be able to pin down who drafted Elias Patterson because it is a collaborative process. But I think a lot of people want to say, you know, there's, there's, there's two camps essentially to this. The Judd Brackett-Trevor Linden versus it's a collaborative process. We can't really blame anyone, a.k.a. It, Jim Benning's a GM. It's his decision. And I don't know, man. I don't, know, I don't, I don't see a big difference between you do. We got the guy. Is that, is that not the most important thing here is we got the guy? We got Patterson. We got arguably the best player in the 2017 draft for the fifth overall pick. I think that's pretty good. Personally, this whole Judd Brackett situation, I wouldn't have let him go. I think the point has been made before. Good organizations keep guys like that around. He obviously has a good connection within uh, USHL. Hey, just look at the guys that have worked out. Brock Besser, Adam Gaudette. That's pretty good for a late first-round pick and a fifth-round pick. I'd say there's two really good players Judd Brackett found because he is, he is a USHL guy. That's how he staked his reputation. But, folks, we mentioned it off the top. The NHL officially announced on Tuesday the day this podcast, last podcast was released, that they are going to a 24-team format. Now, technically, you don't make the playoffs until you win that first round and make it to the final 16. But we at the Next Wisconsin Network, you're going to be hearing a lot. Embrace the fake, man. Embrace the fake. There's literally no downside into cheering for the Vancouver Canucks to win a Stanley Cup this year. If they win the Stanley Cup, <laughs> they win the Stanley Cup first time ever in their 50th anniversary season. That's a very good story. And if they lose, guess what? It's a fake It's a fake cup. It's a COVID cup. It's a Fugazi cup. Who cares? You literally have nothing to lose for cheering for a Vancouver Canucks Stanley Cup this year. Embrace the fake, folks. Embrace the fake. NHL also announced the draft format, the draft lottery format, pardon me, this week or on Tuesday. I don't get it at all. I don't understand why you just can't do it all at once or we're all right after the play-in round, I guess they're going to call it is. I don't know why you need to do two rounds. But hey, NHL's going to NHL, right? Lots of talk about this week for the Vancouver Canucks. And we have a great guest coming up after the break. It's J.D. Burke. Just a minute. Don't hang up. Hello. You'll have to speak up. I'm wearing a towel. All right, we now welcome on Power of the Purell, the under-quarantine version 
of Power of the Towel. You can find this guy's work at Elite Prospects on uh, TSN 1040's Rink Wide. It's J.D. Burke. You know, J.D., many people are already saying this is the highest-rated episode in this podcast history and in the history of podcasts in general. Yeah, we're hearing that sort of thing more and more. We're seeing it from a lot more people. You know, it's it's one of those things, right? I mean, good people, great people. They love when I join podcasts. They listen when I talk on podcasts. Uh, you know, it's very muchly good information. Yeah, That's fo- what I'm hearing. Yeah, fo- folks, we love we love this guy, don't we? We love him. We really do. Yeah, absolutely. So the big Canucks news since Friday has been Judd Bracken. Now, you've done some great reporting along with people like Sadiar Shaw, Patrick Johnson, all the, all those guys, friends of the show. You know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, autonomy and all that. What, from your sense, what was the main reason that Judd Brackett just decided, you know what, I'm going to move on, I'm going to leave the Vancouver Canucks? Well, I, I don't know necessarily if it's so much Judd Brackett walking away from the Vancouver Canucks as much as it is Judd Brackett being shown the door. You know, and, and some people have traced the story back a year and a half in the making. And, and for, I mean, for me, the canary in the coal mine uh, stretches back to when the Canucks traded for Linus Carlson against his council. I mean, that one was a really big moment for me, uh, you know, which it, it's not irregular for that sort of thing to happen. I mean, especially when you've got a GM and a, with a, with a scout's background like Jim Benning, right? He's going to be want to make these own evaluations and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that in a vacuum but uh in retrospect certainly that that moment seems to have been instructive of the year that followed because you hear about a discord at the draft between the two sides uh you know tinkering with the draft board which jim benning admitted to and thomas Trance's column from last friday you take it even a step further suggesting that jim benning did what he felt was necessary to secure Niels Hoglander. Now, I, I have it on good authority that the the scouts were just as keen on Hoglander as Jim Benning was himself. So it's a pretty interesting uh, bit of information for him to put forward. Not necessarily saying that he's lying, but I have a different version of events from my sources, certainly. Um, you know, it's it's one of those, those situations where I think that a little bit of what happened here was the, the myth of Judd Brackett uh, became an obstacle within that front office. And I think you can even see it uh, in in the press release, right? Jim Benning will continue to be mm-hmm. the person making all of these draft decisions, right? There does seem to be a bit of a pushback uh, from the, the Canucks management, whether it's Jim Benning or John Weisbrod, against the myth that everything they're doing well with the draft is happening because of Judd Brackett. And, you know, you, you take it a few weeks after the draft and, and some of the people on Judd's staff are fired without his counsel and some of the people that are hired, Troy Ward, well, that goes back to a connection between uh, John Weisbrod and him with the Calgary Flames. So that one's a pretty easy one to trace and he didn't have any say in the hiring process there. Uh, Brandon Benning, that one seems pretty straightforward, right? Mm. Uh, no real yeah, oversight. Some good old nepotism, I love it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's not terribly uncommon in hockey. And, I mean, look, uh, Paul Fenton hired his kid. I mean, granted, Paul Fenton isn't the model to strive towards, but, you know, <laughs> that first draft that Paul Fenton's kid had was, was pretty damn good, I would say, uh, nepotism or otherwise, right? And certainly Brandon Benning wouldn't be the first instance of nepotism in the NHL. 
So, I mean, if, if we are going to go down that road, I think it's at least fair to point out that it's not an exceptional case by any means. But oh, yeah, no, I think not. most importantly, it's another example of Jeb Brackett not getting to form the shape of his scouting department. And I think when we get into the discussion about what it means to have autonomy, what it means to create uh, a department in your image, that's really what this came down to. It wasn't a debate over whether... Uh, Judd Brackett could have the final say over picks one and two or three or four in the draft. Uh, that's just really not how that works. And and my understanding of the situation based on conversations with multiple sources is that that was never really the case. And, you know, it, it, it does seem a bit bizarre that they wanted to shape the argument that way, that they wanted to frame it as a power struggle over picks one, two, three, whatever you want to call it. I mean, Canucks don't even pick until the third round in this year's draft in all likelihood, but still, uh, it was never about that. And it's never going to be about that wherever Judd lands. And I, I assume he's going to have no trouble finding work. He's not going to be demanding that he gets to make the first or second pick. He just wants to have a reasonable level of oversight over his scouting department. And I think that that in, in and of itself is a very reasonable request to make. I mean, if you were the director of the department, it would only stand to reason that one would get to choose their generals in that post. Uh, that just hasn't been the case with Judd Brackett. And, you know, further to that end, it doesn't appear like that was ever going to be the case after Trevor Linden left, right? Mm-hmm. It just, things seemed to snowball from there. He lost one of his bigger supporters in the organization. And, you know, for all of Trevor Linden's flaws, and they are legion, uh, there was one thing that he respected outright, and that was process and empowering people and being a leader and sometimes being a leader means that you have to take a step back and and rely on the counsel of others and you know if 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 we want to really boil down what this comes down to i think a lot of people are going well jim benning wanted player x and judd wanted player y and this is why judd's better i don't think that's what we should be focusing on here because jim benning isn't supposed to be a scout right now he's supposed to be a general manager Mm -hmm. He is supposed to be putting together a, a group of lower-level management that he can trust in their specific area of expertise. And what's unfortunate isn't that they've got somebody in there now who wanted, for example, Cody Glass instead of Elias Patterson or whatever. What's unfortunate is that we don't have a, a leader at the helm in Vancouver who has it in him to take that step back. Would this be fair to say that this is kind of like a micromanaging situation where Jim Benning wanted a bit more control than a general manager would usually have in this type of situation? Uh, yes and no. I mean, for me, the, the big issue here is is that he wanted more say over an area that usually isn't granted that level of oversight from management, or sorry, <laughs> I suppose doesn't suffer that level of oversight yeah. from management is a more apt way to put it. And and that's, that's where this breakdown really started. Uh, you've got somebody who wants a level of oversight that isn't common in their position over a department that should be left to operate uh, in it, of its own devices for the most part, right? And certainly if you have the level of success that the Canucks have had at the amateur draft, and frankly, I think that it's pretty non-controversial to say that Judd Brackett, for example, is, is one of the best, if not the best, scouts in Canucks history, it would stand to reason that you'd let them do their thing, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's where things get irregular here. It's just the level of oversight over uh, staffing, over, 
the interview process, things like that. So that, that for me really is where the breakdown emerges from. So in most NHL scouting departments, the, the head of amateur scouting would be able to choose who is scouting various regions and stuff. But that doesn't seem to be a case here. It seemed to be, seemed to be from what you're saying, Jim Benning said, okay, here are the guys, work with them. Yeah, more or less. That does seem to be, uh, based on all of the sources that I've spoken with, the way that this went down. And, uh, you know, that's, that's unfortunate, but those are the facts on the ground, whether we like them or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or whether Judd likes them or not, for that matter, as well. So um, that's, that's where the breakdown uh, that's what that came down to, really. Where where do the Canucks go from here? Where did do you, do you feel that Jim Benning, John Weisbrod, can do as good of a job as Judd Brackett? Do you think Canucks scouting takes a big bat? Because I know I know I had uh, Andrew Walker on the show last week, and he was trying to argue that it this this isn't the story. And my my counter argument was, well, I had Sadiar Shaw and Patrick Johnson on the show in January and February. It obviously is a story because we were talking about it back when there was tons of hockey news to talk about me. I mean, you can argue that perhaps maybe this is a bit blown out of proportion because obviously we're in the middle of a stretch of NHL season where there's literally nothing else to talk about, but this obviously still is a story. So where does Jim Benning, yeah, John Rice you know I'm, I'm waiting for, uh, I'm waiting for Andrew Walker to decide that something uh, that paints the Canucks in a positive light isn't a story. Yeah. Have you notice that it's always the things that paint them in a vaguely negative light. You don't have to comment on that. I'm just pointing out how preposterous it is that somebody would condescend their audience, would try to dictate the terms of their fandom and their engagement with the product that buttresses our careers, that he would deign to tell others how to consume this product just cracks me up. The audience decides what is or isn't a story. Go off, King. Go off. Not me. Not you not anybody in the media. And if the audience wants to hear about this, then it's a story. Yeah, Plain I've, and simple. Have you ever heard of a story like this in terms of like a head of amateur scouting, you know, having such a public breakup with their team? This maybe because I don't pay attention that much amateur scouting departments outside the Vancouver Canucks, but this whole situation just seemed super, super public and out there. It's, it's unique and it's not supposed to be a front-facing job. That's that's one thing that, that came up a lot in this, uh, this story, right? Is that if you're a scout, you're supposed to do your job, do it quietly and fade into the background. And, you know, frankly, I, I think that there's, there's merit to that. I think that if the GM has to bear the brunt of, of a amateur scouting department's uh, failure, they should be able to... Um, what's it called? They should be able to... to bear the brunt of its success as well, right? Like Mike Gillis, when the Canucks fired him, and I think you could point to a lack of success at the NHL draft as, as the primary cause for that, right? Because if he had cheap, cost-controlled uh, contracts on the books and young talent that were entering their peak or prime productive years, then I don't think that the drop-off would have been as drastic towards the uh, twilight of the Sedin's careers, yeah. correct? I, I don't think that's an unreasonable take, and and even if he's not directly responsible for the picks in rounds two through seven, it's his head that's on the chopping block, right? It's not Ron DeLorme who was the director of amateur scouting during many of those years. It's Jim Benning. So 
I, I, I think, or sorry, it was Mike Gillis. So I think that there's an element of fairness to that. I, I, I also think, though, that it's, you know, that there's nothing wrong with, with sharing credit and pointing out good work. And you're supposed to have your staffs back, right? Like, I, I think that there's there's a lot of different uh, contextual nuggets here. There's a lot of different angles one can approach this from. And, and you know, for example, Jim Benning did push back at some of my reporting. If you listen on Friday, he's saying the one thing that upset me was uh, we had scouts doing good work and having their credibility questioned. And, you know, mm-hmm. fair enough. I, I can just point to the fact that they have people on their staff who oversaw the worst drafting team in the league for over five years. But I think it's also good to promote your staff to shine a, a, a positive light on them. I mean, if, if you're not willing to do that, then why are they there? So I think there's a lot of different ways that one can look at this. I really do. Uh, and and whether it would or wouldn't be a story in other markets, eh, fair enough, right? But, I mean, we were all talking about Mike Fuda when he lost his job. And I did notice Stephen Balakhead, who covers the New York Rangers, chiming in on Judd Brackett's dismissal. So, you know, it's it's again, it's one of those things where there's a million different ways that one could look at this. It all lies in the eyes of the beholder. I think if Jim Benning wanted somebody who had less of a public profile, that wouldn't be unreasonable. But I also don't think that there's something inherently bad with promoting the the work that Judd Brackett's done. Because let's be honest, if, if Elias Pedersen isn't on this team, does Jim Benning have a job right now? Yeah. I don't think anybody can confidently say yes. So, again, it all depends on how one wants to look at this. I think that there can be reasonable sides, or sorry, reasonable positions on either side of this debate. It just all depends on the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. So my final kind of scouting Judd Brackett question is, are you confident without Judd Brackett that the Vancouver Canucks can keep up this you know pretty good drafting record they've had over... No. No, you're not. Okay, so like... No, I, well, I mean, like, I, I reported this, and Jim Benning pushed back against it, and, and honestly, good for him. Good for him. You should have your stats back in the, in the public, but... I'm not commenting on them as people. I'm not commenting on their credibility, uh, but but the results are there, right? Like you look at Ron Delorme, who's one of the the chief uh, crossover scouts nowadays, and Thomas Verdine. They all had a really large role to play in the Canucks being the worst drafting team in the NHL over a very long, sustained period. Counterpoint: Thomas Verdine discovered the Sedins, allegedly. Counterpoint: Who has he discovered since? Alexander Edler and anybody in the 10 plus years that follows, you know, I mean, what about Patterson? Okay. Sorry. Well, let's, let's get to this question right now. The whole who drafted Elias Patterson question is getting a lot of steam online. It's like trying to, as I said this in my intro, it's like trying to break down who actually got the Jeffrey Epstein. Like people are arguing this person did it. And then this person told this person. And then they're well, we know that the Clintons got to Epstein. Let's let's stop you there, but um, you know, you know what? Like, here's the thing: it's it's not as if he was some seventh round uh, Pavel Datsu for Henrik Sederberg, right? Like everybody in the league knew who Elias Pettersson was. So I think using the term like "found him" is almost uh, overselling things a bit. Yeah, but you got people online was, trying to break down what the word "discovered" means versus you know, putting on someone's radar. Like it's gone to this point. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I get that. And and I mean, like, if you want to put credit at anyone's feet, it's got to be Ingi Hammerstrom, their, their Swedish scout, who he, he was the one who was camped out in Timur watching those games. And honestly, 
that's that's who you you put the the credit. Uh, that's where you apportion the credit. I mean, the thing is though, if he's the one who found Patterson and and he did, mm-hmm. you also have to give credit to the likes of Trevor Linden for defending a scouting process that allowed his work to resonate at the board, at the table, and and the same goes for Judd Brackett, right? I think that I summed it up aptly when I said that the three people most responsible for Elias Pedersen, they're all gone with, they're, they're all outside the organization now. And uh, that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. And again, if the Canucks had taken Cody Glass with that pick, I wouldn't have batted an eye. I would have said good pick, good for them. And I wouldn't be second guessing them today if they weren't the team of Elias Pedersen, right? But I think it's important to highlight the fact that they came to a consensus, they had a thorough evaluation process that led them to this point, and it was a true testament to leadership, in this case from Trevor Linden, that they were able to land on him. So that's my take on the Elias Pedersen quote-unquote discovery. Did Thomas Gurdin have anything to do with Elias Pedersen? I, I, I don't think so. I mean, he's a WHL scout. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh. and, he does, and, he, and he does some crossover work, right? But the amount of crossover work that Delorme and Gradine do relative to other crossover scouts is, is pretty minimal. And I mean, like, of, of course, like, fair enough. They're, they're up there in age. They have families that they want to be around. It's a very demanding job. But those are the facts on the ground. Uh, you know, Delorme might have seen him at a Five Nations tournament or a Four Nations tournament and and vouched for him, but that's not Delorme's pick. I'm sorry, Delorme's a WHL scout. Uh, oh. It's not Gradine's pick. Gradine scouts the WHL. Like oh. I, I'm sorry, these are the facts on the ground, and it, it doesn't have to be a, a dig at those two. But I think that rightly we have to give credit if it has to go anywhere to firstly Angie Hammerstrom and then Bracket and Linden for defending a process that allowed his work to shine and produce the best results. Okay, so confirmed by JD Burke, Angie Hammerstrom. Okay, that's that's good to know. It's good to know. So, Jim Benning, Harmon Dial wrote, it, it, if you can believe it, it's been six years. Sorry, it's been six years since Jim Benning's taken over the Vancouver Canucks. It's been a while. And Harmon Dial wrote a great piece on The Athletic where he gave Jim Benning's tenure with the Vancouver Canucks a C-plus grade. Now, I happen to believe that, like, C-plus is pretty fair. Like, I'm not, if I was back in school, I wouldn't be proud of getting a C-plus. But I think a C-plus grade I mean, is fairly I would, fair. I was a terrible student. Oh no! I was Mister C plus when I was when I was going to SFU trying to get in the business, and I wasn't not very happy. It's why I started, you know, doing stuff like this and trying to get into podcasting. But you've said that Jim Benning's tenure with the Vancouver Canucks is an abject failure. I believe that's the correct term you use. Just give me your your critique of Jim Benning. Why don't you feel a C plus grade is fair? Well, I mean, only four teams in the NHL have lost more hockey games in his time as the Canucks general manager than the Canucks. On what planet does that get a passing grade? Mm-hmm. Now, would I be willing to perhaps give him the benefit of the doubt had the Canucks accumulated draft picks, had they accumulated prospects, had they taken on bad salary to build their, their treasure trove of assets? Certainly. I think that changes the dynamics entirely, and it it gives you a different lens with which to view this. But in a world where they tried to compete, where they signed Louis Erickson for six years at $6 million per, Mm -hmm. traded valuable futures for Erica Branson, 
go on and on down the list. It's hard to reconcile the results. This is not a team that tanked. They, the only part of tanking that they got right was losing and losing repeatedly and losing in embarrassing fashion. If that's a path, then I, I just can't fathom what, what it takes to fail. You know, like how much, how much worse can one do? Right. That's, that's the question that I ask myself. So, you know, I, I think that it's not end times. Like there is a nucleus with which to build around. One could feasibly create a contender out of the players that they have on this roster. But I don't think that the body of work to date is suggestive of somebody who has the, uh, the toolkit necessary to do that. Right. That's, that's what I'm saying more or less. So, you know, it's, it's just, it's one of those things, right. And really it's, it's just that simple. If, if only four teams have lost more hockey games than you over a span of six years, how do you pass? Yeah, well, that's a good point. But here, here's the way I looked at it from someone who got a lot of C plus C pluses, sorry, in his days at SFU, I would get a C plus because I would be failing at the first midterm cram my ass off, get a B on the final, and then end up with a C plus. And I see and I, you know, call feel free to call me out if I'm talking talking on my ass right now. But that's how I feel like kind of Jim Benning's tenure is. He was obviously failing up until let's say the Elias Pedersen pick, but there's been some good moves and some good draft picks since then. Obviously you could argue that Jim Benning and the Vancouver Canucks have taken the best player from the twenty seventeen and twenty eighteen draft so far. And He's corrected his mistakes in terms of like an Eric Branson. Sure, he definitely fucked up when he gave up those assets for Eric Branson. But hey, Tanner Pearson's a pretty good, you know, middle six forward. He managed to get JT Miller, which which I was a detractor at first. Turned out to be a pretty good trade. He got a guy like Tyler Toffoli, who's going to round up if if they are able to resign him, a pretty good top six. So personally, like C plus, pretty fair. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree to disagree. I mean, like. Has he improved in recent years? Sure, but I'm not grading him based solely on the most flattering part of his tenure. I'm grading him based on his entire body of work. And his entire body of work is, again, the 26th best in the league. So, you know, what's what's one to do? Mm, yeah, no, that that is, a good, that is a good point as well. And I feel that Jim Benning, like, you can argue, like, some of his, like, I think, I think, most part he's learned from his mistakes and maybe that maybe the mistakes are what got him in here but i'm interested to see like i think this offseason is going to be very important for jim benning and the vancouver canucks and we can get into this right now as well like what what do the canucks need to do in this offseason to take that next step because i see you know obviously they're going to try and sign jacob markstrom no matter the cost i think it's almost a done deal that they get him re-signed and i'm interested to see what that contract is like but how important is offseason? What do the Canucks have to do whenever this offseason is to, you know, take that next step? Well, they, they need to clear some salary. That's, that's going to be a big starting point, right? Um, you know, and I, I think not because Brandon Sutter is the worst contract on the books, not because he's the worst player on the Canucks, but because he has the salary that can most easily be moved or, or, cut in half, what have you, I think that they have to find a way to get out from under that contract, whether it's a buyout or a retained salary transaction. Let, let's be real. His if last they, name, Sutter, is going to help his trade value. Like someone's going to take the bite 100%. on that. 
one would think, but I mean, that also has kept the Canucks from trading him too, right? Like they, they value him a lot, what he brings to the organization and yeah, foundational you know, power piece. to them. I, yes. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I share their assessment, but Hey, that's, that's their right to make that. And, um, you know, I think that's one contract that they have to try desperately to get out from under Sven Berchi as well. Like, I think these are the goals of the organization is, is to move salary because I don't think that they have it in them to be a big player on the open market. I don't think they have it in them to be a big player on the trade market, but they can keep some of their own in tow. And if they can manage to re-sign Jacob Markstrom and Tyler Toffoli, then I think they can leave this off off season in pretty good shape. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what, what do you, have you heard anything about this Jacob Markstrom contract in the sense that, how long it's going to be, what the AAV, anything like that. Because, hey, we saw what happened with Sergei Bobrovsky in Florida and his big deal, which always, is already looking pretty bad. And I'm not saying the Canucks are going to sign him to like some massive, some massive deal, but what do you think it would be a fair price for Jacob Markstrom? And what do you think the Canucks are going to sign him for? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm almost done making predictions on this stuff because the landscape has changed so drastically. We don't have a clue whether he's going to be interested in a bridge deal or not to try and build long-term value, whether that drives the price up or down. I mean, it's, it's a really uncertain time right now in the NHL. So, you know, I, I think that, frankly, it's, it's entirely in their shoes. I, I'm not willing to say it's going to be X years or X dollars. You know, I, I think before the world started ending, I would have, predicted something in the five-year range and somewhere between five and six million for Jacob Markstrom. It's not exactly a, a seller's market for goalies right now. The teams that are buying have the upper hand, but he's still somebody that is just so valuable to this team that they can't afford to lose him. So, you know, I think those are the numbers that I would keep in mind, but I wouldn't be surprised if it goes in either direction, up or down drastically for that matter. Okay, okay. So, you're thinking like, would you say five years, five million per would be like a fair deal for Markstrom? Because that's that's the, oh, where yeah, I, the, my I mean, brain goes right now. If you're the Canucks, you sign that, you know, and it's obviously longer than I would like to go for a goalie at his age, but it's also, I mean, that's just the cost of doing business in that scenario, right? And he's too valuable to test the alternative, so. I think if you're the Canucks, you hop on that almost immediately. So the NHL on Tuesday, unfortunately, the day we last released our podcast, came out with the whole you know, 2014 format NHL draft lottery. And I want to get your thoughts on the 2014 playoffs. But I know you do a lot of good work with elite prospects. You're very invested in the NHL draft lottery. Can you explain, like I'm five, how the hell the NHL draft lottery is going to work this year? I don't get it. I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, there's no really, <laughs> there isn't a good reason why they can't do it at the same time, right? Um, so I, I won't, uh, you know, pretend that there is, but I mean, it basically is the exact same as last year's draft lottery. In fact, it's more or less identical. Uh, the only difference is that, you know, the teams ranked 16 through 24 that are in the 2014 playoff proposal. Uh, they will enter the draft lottery. Their balls will be entered as placeholder. 
So if one of them gets picked into a top three spot, um, they will have a secondary phase of the draft lottery to, uh, you know, with which to determine the placement of the other teams. Otherwise, it would remain more or less identical. Okay, so there's a theoretical chance that, say that the what they're calling they're, they're calling the play-in round, right? There's a team in there mm-hmm. who knows if they lose, they have a fairly good shot at getting like the third overall pick. Not a fairly good shot, but they they do have a chance, depending on whether one of the placeholder balls lands in one of the top three spots. Oh man, can you can you imagine like Twitter if the Canucks, like the cha- like the first overall pick is going to a team that loses in the play round? Like Canucks Twitter would just go absolutely bonkers. Yeah, it would be complete meltdown territory. <laughs> you know, it would be pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, absolutely, and. What are your what were your thoughts on the twenty four team like format? Because the way I look at it when coming in was I understand why we need to give teams like Montreal, Chicago a shot in it. That like I just well, they, they were they're out of it. They're they out of a, it. Well, they got a shot because the NHL needs to generate revenue. Like I, I think it really is that simple, right? And these are pretty big markets with massive TV followings, and having them be a part of the process is uh, to the league's benefit uh, financially. And they're trying to recover some some serious lost revenue here. So, you know, it's it's usually that simple, right? Follow the dollars, and you'll get your answer. And I think that's really where this one lies: is the league is stronger when Chicago and Montreal are near the top of. Uh, near the near the top of the TV priority, the TV power rankings, whatever you want to call it, and uh, that, that's just pretty much their motivation right there. I mean, uh, the NHL. This is a really scary time for them. I mean, a lot of people can't really suss out the difference between a lockout and this moment, but you know, one of the big differences is that they're still on the hook for these players' salaries, and while they're on the hook for these salaries, it's it's going to be devastating to some of these smaller markets. Right, particularly if they can't meet their end of a financial obligation on a, you know, for example, on their regional TV deal. So there's a lot that goes into this, and I think that's uh, really at the heart of it. It's just a desire to do right by their corporate corporate partners, and whether that's something that they should care about or otherwise. I mean, not necessarily for me to say, right? But that yeah. seems to be one of the motivating factors, certainly. And you have, and I think a lot of people have to consider that a lot of these owners, their other businesses are hurting as well. It's not just like they're making the regular amount of money and just locking the players out. Not that I'm saying feel bad for the billionaire owners of the NHL. I'm sure they're still living no, very comfortably no. right now. But I bet, I bet you a lot of their businesses are not the other businesses outside of the NHL that help run their hockey teams aren't doing too well right now. No, no, they're in really rough shape. They're principal businesses. I mean, imagine if you're Tom Gillardi right now. Right, you're you're heavily invested in hospitality, whether it's restaurants or hotels. Mm-hmm. You're you're not making a dime, you know. In fact, you're probably losing a lot of money at present. So, it's uh, it's 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 a tough time for the owners on that front as well. Like you said, uh, no need to actually you know shed much concern on their behalf, but certainly it it helps one understand what their their impetus is, and uh, you know, I, I think again. If you if you take that into account along with the league's position, then it really is that simple. It becomes very easy to understand at that point. Have you heard anything in terms of NHL scouting departments getting you know downsized or cut down or anything like that? Because 
I like I, I just assume that like if these NHL owners are gonna cut costs, like maybe scouting's an area to do it. But have you heard any of these NHL teams deciding to, you know, scale down scouting? I, I haven't heard about any of that yet, but it certainly is a, a potential risk, right? I mean, uh, these these owners don't really, I mean, I, I hate to be the one to break this to people, billionaires don't care about you. Uh, they care about their bottom line and they'll do anything to protect it. So I haven't heard anything yet, but no, that is certainly something to watch or to monitor as this uh, as this moves forward. Okay, so I want to get to some more fun questions now. Uh, when I had Jackson McDonald on my podcast, I asked him if he wanted to wrestle Tej from the Lars arm wrestle Tej from the Lars cast for you know for the content for the good at Canucks Twitter because that's what people I think would really want to see in a time like this. Now he died. I'm sure Tej versus Jackson would be the main event, but I'm wondering, would you be willing to arm wrestle Tanbeer for the op- for the opener? Yeah, I'm good. I got better stuff to do. <laughs> you so you have Tanbeer. I've officially patched things up. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, you know, not to sound like, uh, you know, John Hammond and Mad Men, but I, I don't think about Tanbeer at all. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, power to him for apologizing for being in the wrong. I appreciate it, uh, and that's the last I'll think of him for a while. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're no, taking, not taking you're, a shot. You're taking the moral high road. Uh, yeah, not taking a shot. Not looking for beef, but I just don't care. <laughs> would, would you? Who would you be willing to arm wrestle for the opening, opening match? Who would I arm wrestle? Yeah. Oh geez, um, I don't know. Maybe Jackson for fun. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Hey. Maybe you. Maybe you and Jackson can team up against Tej and some of his choosing. Yeah, I mean, that that could be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So I got a couple of questions here from Kyle Bowen, host of Silky and Filthy, the, who works with us at Next Wisconsin Podcasting. He's, his first question is, who is your favorite villain? Who's my favorite villain? Yeah. Like in... In, in any... Um, in the, pop yeah, culture? Yeah, in like pop culture, anything. Who's your favorite villain? That's a tough one. I mean, the, the, the first one that comes to mind is probably Killmonger. Um, from Black Panther, I, I, you know, frankly, I think that he was the one who was in the right. You ask me, but uh, <laughs> he, he's a very sympathetic character, right? It's easy to understand his plight. Um, you know, it's it's easy to understand from where he comes, his motivations, and and frankly, I'd probably be on his side between the fight uh, between him and the Black Panther himself. So. Yeah, he's definitely one of the first ones that comes to mind as far as, as villains go. Um, you know, another shout out to, to the OG um, Emperor Palpatine in Star Wars. Yes. I mean, he's not exactly what one would describe as a, as a, a sympathetic villain, somebody who uh, generates sympathy from the audience or understanding or anything like that. But I mean, what a what a performance by Ian McDiarmid in both the original and uh, the prequel trilogy. So. Uh, he, he gets some love from your boy as well. I mean, I know I'm forgetting someone. There's somebody, you know, right at the tip of my tongue who I've always admired as a as a villain that I just can't think of at present. But uh, what can you do? Yeah, Emperor Palpatine. That is, that is a very good answer. And his his final question from Kyle, this is from Kyle Bowen. How much to have a show here at the Post Up Studios in North Burnaby where I'm recording this right now? His deal is 
He can offer you free weed, free bananas, and whenever you want to come to the studio and record either for, I assume, for the post-up network or for whatever, do you accept this deal? Well, you guys would smoke me up and, and like, hook up some beer? Well, we could, we could, I don't know about beer, but the weed is on us and bananas. You know what? I'm not a huge banana guy, but, yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, how... When the world stops ending, I'd be happy to. Okay, yeah, perfect. Okay, I'm going to get Kyle to message you as soon as this podcast comes out. We're going to make this happen. So, all right. All right, so your, your career. Now, I've, I've been reading your stuff since I, like the Canucks Army days, which has been a while ago. But how did you decide? Right here. Yeah, it's, it's been a while. And like, how, how did you decide to get into covering hockey? What was your, I don't want to say like come to Jesus moment, but what was your, what was your moment where you said, I want to, you know, try and pursue this as a career? You know, it, it all kind of happened by accident. You know, I, I was, um, I was, I must've been 20 years old at the time. I was, I just moved into a new spot and, you know, I had a painting job, which paid the bills and, you know, it, it was, it was what it was, right. It was the type of job where it was a job, not a career. And I'd quickly become, I guess dissatisfied is the word with painting and, you know, so I was always scanning Craigslist and I actually was watching a football game at the time. It was Cowboys Panthers. I can still remember this moment. Um, and it was halftime and I'm looking for a job and I see NFL writer pop up and, uh, you know, okay. I, I love football. Writing was one of the only things I did even reasonably well in high school. Although looking back probably terribly with retrospect, um, you know, so I, I applied, uh, out of the blue when I saw this job on Craigslist and was lucky enough to get the posting with an American company. And it just kind of snowballed from there. One thing led to the, to the next. And before you know it, I'm writing at Canucks army just like that. So, you know, it was a, it was a really kind of accidental process that led me to this point. But as soon as it became clear that I was at least vaguely competent at it and, uh, that there might be a path for a career, I basically just kind of stuck with it and, and dove headfirst into it and decided that, you know, if I was going to get out of manual labor, this was going to be the job that did it. And, you know, just kind of stuck with it until eventually I got my lucky break with Elite Prospect. Mm. I didn't know you started, like, with football. How did you man manage to transition from football to hockey? I mean, pretty easily. I'd, I'd played hockey my entire life and, you know, I definitely love the sport, so, you know, it was pretty easy to uh, just shift up the principal focus from football to hockey, with, you know, without uh, skipping a beat there. I mean, I, I think it's really kind of worked out for the best, too, because, like, as a spectator, as a fan, I think that football might be, you know, might be my favorite of the two sports. I don't know. And, uh, you know really do love hockey as well too. So couldn't be happier with how it worked out. Mm -hmm. So I assume I don't want like, I assume you got the job with elite prospects because of your work with Canucks army. I, I still read like the Canucks army prospect list. I usually, my, my, my research for the draft is I just read articles on Canucks army the day of, but is that like how you managed to get it with elite prospects was with your work with Canucks army? Yeah. Yeah. That and the athletic Oh, you know, of course, those two yes. things combined led me to that point. So, you know, I basically saw a platform that had a lot of potential, you know, with, with everything that was going on 
elite prospects in terms of being a resource for information um, for hockey outside of the NHL. And, and I decided that we were going to chart our own course and we were going to do our own kind of prospect analysis. And, you know, they've been super supportive of that vision through and through and given me all the resources necessary to uh, take it to its logical conclusion. And we got some really big things in the work going forward too. So a uh, great place to work, really happy to be there and extremely grateful that they gave me this opportunity. I know you had a very like close relationship with the late Jason Botchford. Now, I want to ask you, what was the best advice Jason Botchford gave you? Because I see in you a lot of you know the combative fighting kind of online, maybe not online, but just persona that Jason Botchford also had. Yeah, I mean, he, he really kind of led by example. And the best thing I got from him was just that the only way it was ever going to work was if, uh, if I... If I was myself, right, and and that means being combative, and that means talking about subjects that you won't really see broached by most hockey writers or analysts, right, and and seeing the way that he handled himself, it really kind of made me feel like there would be room for me in the hockey world, um, you know, to to be to be JD Burke, not to be some kind of restrained. Um, you know, sports media caricature, but myself. And, and I try to live that uh, every day. And, and, you know, I think that that's kind of the advice I would give to everyone else as well, right? The only person who can make it work uh, as you is, is you yourself. You know, don't try to be anybody else. Uh, don't try to follow in anyone's footsteps. And, and you got as good a chance as you'll ever have if you, if you chart that course. So, that was the best advice that he gave me, and it's something that I try to keep in the back of my mind every single day. Mm, so, when you're interacting with what you'd call like the smooth brain people on Twitter, do you do you get like do you kind of smirk and think like Jason would would love this right now? I mean, like there there are moments certainly. I mean, like for me, the video I put out was one where you know because I I live with Justin Morrison, he was the one who filmed it. And, that was some great you know, videography I, I be, work by Justin, like the pan down. Oh, I. I, I would tend to agree, and I and I hope I hope that it uh, gets an Oscar nod because otherwise he will have been robbed. But you know, uh, I I think that video, for example, was pretty prototypical botch. And I even said to somebody, I was like, you know, if there's a if there's a heaven, then then botch is up there watching that video with a smirk and yelling something incoherent at somebody, right? Uh, that was definitely one of those moments. Um, for sure, and and kind of the the bigger than life um, wrestling heel persona, that definitely was something that he kind of brought to the table sometimes. So, uh, definitely something that I try to be mindful of myself as I move up the ranks and try to, uh, you know, try to move up and and you know nobody's going to replace him, but to occupy the same space that he once did. Mm-hmm. So doing some research before this interview, I found out you're watching The Sopranos right now. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. yes. You're watching, is this the first time? Yes. Okay. My first, well, like I, I, my parents watched it when I was growing up sometimes. But, you know, uh, it's the first time I've really watched it and paid close attention, I guess I would okay. say. Okay, your thoughts on The Sopranos? I think it's a brilliant show. I, I think it's, you know, like I just finished season three and 
you know, my, my standard for the best season of television is, is probably still season one of True Detective. I don't think that anybody's ever going to produce a better single season of television than that. But, I mean, man, I, I don't think season three of The Sopranos is that far behind. And, you know, it's just the depth of each character, right, is, oh, yeah. is so impressive to me. Uh, you know, the like they convey such complex sentiments and um, feelings through such simple subjects, you know, and it's really hilarious too. the, (laughs) the, the actual like comedy of that series isn't lost on me by any stretch of the imagination. So it's, uh, it's, it's just, it's hitting all the right notes. It's very well written. Uh, It's always entertaining. And um, it really speaks to some really interesting kind of, uh, moments from that time capsule as well, right? I mean, that's that's one thing too that I think kind of helps it resonate with me is the fact that, um, you know, like I was I was growing up in that environment in that time frame, and getting to see it again as a sentient adult is <laughs> yeah. it's a pretty special experience, right? To get to revisit that era, and it's kind of funny because I was living in the states too uh, during that time. I lived in Concord, California, for three years. And it's like, oh, yeah, no, that's totally what it was like. So it's, it's kind of got some nostalgia to it. The writing's great. The characters are great. I mean, what else could you ask for? Sorry, where, whereabouts is Concord, California? That's about a 45-minute drive from, uh, from San Francisco, like just outside the Bay Area. Oh, okay, cool. That's, so you lived three years there. I didn't know that. That's dope. Yeah, three years. That's awesome, man. See, I thought your favorite thing about the Sopranos was just Italians doing dumb stuff. Like, you could have said that, and I would not have been offended. I was like, that's my favorite part of the show as well. I mean, like, yes, I, I my background is Irish. So seeing Italians do incredibly dumb stuff and get clowned on repeatedly definitely appeals to me on some level. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, but it's, it's funny. It also appeals, I find it funny, too. It, exactly. It also appeals to me on much more holistic levels as well, though. Yeah, so season three, you watch like you watch the Pine Barrens episode in season three. That to me is like the best episode of Sopranos. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. It's got Polly and Christopher off running a, an incredibly stupid side quest, um, in which they look like ridiculous, laughable idiots. You got Tony with the affair. I mean, it's just it's it's the Sopranos like the raw, uncut shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, oh, big fan. Yeah. So have you seen The Wire as well? Because the, the debate's always been Sopranos and The Wire, and I've always been Team Sopranos. Where do you stand on that now? I'm, you know what? I don't know if I could rank the two, but I'm just on my first watch through of The Wire as well, right? So I'm uh, two or three episodes into season five, and I think they're both spectacular, albeit for different reasons, naturally. Okay. One thing I do want to say about The Sopranos, and you will find out, Later on, when you watch The Sopranos, there is a bunch of bunch of episodes later on in the series where it's clear that HBO just told them, "Okay, we need like four or five extra episodes in this season. Make some stuff up." So there's some pretty kind of not like bad, but subpar episodes later on in the series. Where, as I feel, The Wire, it doesn't have that. Right? It's a very clear like message, like top down. They didn't put in any extra fluff. That's the one thing I think The Wire definitely has over The Sopranos. But other than that, Sopranos, in my opinion, is a lot better. Maybe because it's I'm, I'm Italian. That's why, that's why I like it more. I don't know. 
I mean, maybe I figured if, if I were Italian, I'd hate it. It's fun. Like you said, it's Italians doing stupid stuff. I don't find it. I don't find it offensive. I find it funny as hell. I can watch that show. Yeah. It's like, Hey, I know that guy. I know a guy yeah, like no, Paulie. Fair enough. I'm yeah. sure you know several. Oh, I know. I know a few. Don't worry. Don't worry about it, man. So yeah. my, my final question. So we at the next misconduct network, we're all about a Canucks Stanley cup this year. Hashtag embrace the fake because as I the way I see it, there's literally nothing wrong. There's there's no downside to rooting for a Vancouver Canucks Stanley Cup this year. First of all, if they win the Stanley Cup, they win the Stanley Cup. They win their first ever Stanley Cup in their 50th year. What better storyline is that? But if they lose, it's a fake COVID Fugazi Cup. Who cares? It doesn't count anyways. So there's really no, in my opinion, and in all of our opinions here at the Next Misconduct Network, there's no downside to cheering and wanting a Vancouver Canucks Stanley Cup. Now, if it was a regular 16-team playoff, I wouldn't be as hyped. But hey, embrace the fake. That's what we're going with. Embrace the fake. So my question is, what has to go right for the Vancouver Canucks to win the Stanley Cup this year? Uh, Goaltending. Goaltending and a clean bill of health. I mean, I I think that this really does shape up as 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 a really good opportunity for the Canucks. I think that they're getting healthy. They've got Jacob Markstrom on the mend. I mean, with a little luck, Josh Levo might return to the lineup. You know, they've got Tyler Toffoli to round out their top six. Like, you know, I, I think that this could be a situation where really bizarre circumstances play in their favor. And, you know, I thought going into this that the Canucks might have a chance to win a round or two this year. But, I mean, look, with a, a fully healthy Jacob Markstrom and a well-rested Alex Edler, who knows, right? Like, anything can happen in the playoffs. It's not likely that they would win, and I think Jacob Markstrom would have to put in a performance for the ages, but I think they could make some noise. I really do. And I think, as usual, it's all going to come down to goaltending. Mm-hmm. See, the, the one thing that worries me is Colorado. If when I, I, I'm pretty confident they'll beat Minnesota. Just looking at a surface level, Canucks have better forward depth and goaltending. That should let them win, win the series. But Colorado, theoretically, they're going to be all healthy when we come back. That's the one team that worries me. But if we can beat, if the Canucks can beat Colorado, I'm pretty confident. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Colorado is just such a fast team. Like they're built for the postseason, so that would be a tough market, uh, tough matchup for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, JD, thanks for agreeing to do this, agreeing to come on. Hopefully, we can have you on again. Is there anything you want to plug? Anything you want to say to anyone before we uh, before we wrap up here? You know what? Just uh, keep your eyes peeled for the Elite Prospects Draft Guide. We're putting so much work into this. And, uh, you know, I'm really happy with what we've come up with as a group. We're going to have a new draft ranking that drops in the middle of June. Keep your eyes peeled for that as well. And otherwise, you can find me on Twitter at Burke. Okay, so little teaser. Who's going to be the... I'm not going to say... I'm not going to get you to ask who's a top-ranked prospect. Who's the 15th-ranked prospect? Who's the 15th? Yeah. Probably, if I'm going to put a name on it, either Maverick Bork or Brendan Brisson. Maverick Bork is a great name. I like I like that guy already. JD, thanks for thanks for agreeing to do this. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can have you on soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks to JD Burke of Elite Prospects and TSN 1040 for hopping on the podcast. Much, much appreciated. Now, during this whole stoppage of play in the NHL, this whole global pandemic. We've been 
trying to recommend some stuff for you to binge, some maybe stuff you haven't listened to or watched ever or for a while. This week's recommendation is probably my favorite rock album of the past 10 years. It's definitely up there in terms of one of my already one of my favorite rock albums ever. It's Inner Speaker by Tame Impala. Look, Kevin Parker is probably my favorite musician out there. I'm a voracious Kevin Parker listener in terms of not only his music, but any sort of interviews he does, anything to do with his creative process, because I find it interesting. I want to know how this guy by himself can create three of my favorite albums in recent memory. This one, Lonerism and Currents. Three of my favorite albums out there right now. They're all absolutely awesome, but I want to recommend Inner Speaker because I think it's a good place to start. Is it's more straight up rock album. Very, if you like 1960s psychedelic rock, if you like psychedelic rock, this is automatically a must-listen-to album. So many great tracks. You know, my personal favorite is a track like Lucidity. Absolutely awesome. And hey, Kevin Parker, the drumming on this album is very, very, very underrated. Kevin Parker is an amazing, amazing drummer, and it makes sense. He was the drummer of a band called Pond, another great Australian psychedelic rock band you should check out if you like this album. But yeah, it was wild. Inner Speaker by Tame Impala. Ranked 83rd best album of the decade so far by Pitchfork in August 2014. I rank it a lot higher. Again, the ultimate test of a psychedelic rock album, in my opinion, sorry, psychedelic movement, music, sorry, is if you listen to it stoned and you realize only a super stoned person can come up with something like this, that's the test for a psychedelic rock album, in my opinion. Again, Inner Speaker by Tame Impala. Absolutely awesome album. Check it out. You can listen to it in under an hour. And hey, again, let me know your thoughts on Inner Speaker by Tame Impala by tweeting us at Nick Bondi at myself or at Power of the Towel. I really love album art as well. Super trippy. Pretty well encapsulates what it's like to be just tripping balls off some sort of psychedelic. And I forgot to mention this. Bring this up with J.D. Burke. This is my apologies. Forgot to mention this at the beginning of the podcast. But we'd be remiss if we didn't at least somewhat comment on what happens, what has happened and is happening likely when you're listening to this in regards to protest riots in the in the United States. Look, this issue is not a left-right issue. It's just a human rights dignity issue. This is not, you know, left-right ta- issue on taxation. It's just people want to be treated with respect. African Americans in the United States, hey, and in Canada as well. It's we we I don't think Canada should be exempt from this. We've had some horrific treatment of our of our native population. But this is not a left-right issue. This is about human dignity. And I think we, as, as someone like myself, who never 
who never probably will have to experience what an African-American has to go through in terms of law enforcement. We just have to listen. And that's all. I, and that's, that's what I want to say on the subject. I'm, I'm, I, I apologize for not bringing it up with J.D. Burke. I'm sure we would have had a great conversation on it for whatever reason. It didn't, it didn't cross my mind asking. And you know what? I think I, I have to be better on that. I think we all have to be better in times like that. Anyways, this is another episode of Power of the Purell, the under-quarantine version of Power of the Towel. Make sure to subscribe to the Next Misconduct Network wherever you get podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, myself, at Nick Bondi, myself, at Power of the Towel. Thank you for listening.